touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we wanted to talk about something that, uh, uh, technology that really made a big splash in late 2012 and really in 2013. Something that got a lot of people excited. Uh, I guess you could say it kick-started the virtual reality craze again in the U.S. Oh my goodness. The Oculus Rift. So, uh, yes, uh, and as of June, they announced that they had just raised $16 million in private funding. $16 million. Which isn't shabby for a company run by a 20-year-old guy. Okay, let's not focus on how young this guy is. No, that's amazing. That's, that's, <sighs> this is a tinkerer who is, who is of the people. And, uh, and 18 years younger than I am. Oi. Oi. Yeah, no, he really is, though. He's one of those guys who worked out of his garage messing with stuff that interested him and was able to leverage that into something that is really taking at least one section of the gaming world by storm. So we will be talking a lot about video games, but in this case, it's a it's a peripheral for video games. So all of you people out there who hate video game topics, this is still cool. It's virtual reality. Now, before we get into a discussion about Oculus Rift in uh, particularly, I wanted to mention just sort of a history of virtual reality, uh, kind of Jonathan's history of virtual reality. So this isn't in our notes or anything. This is from my own personal experience. This is completely unofficial. He is making it up as he goes along. Well, Dinosaurs from, will be involved. Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, yes. Well, technically, it's not a dinosaur. Pterodactyl's not a dinosaur, but it's close. Um, so virtual reality, for those of you who were alive in the 90s and remember this kind of stuff, that it started to really kind of get buzz in the early to mid 90s. This was one of those terms that was promising to turn computing on its head. It was changing the way we thought about computers. It was going to be immersive. You were going to be surrounded by the computer data. You would be part of this experience. It would no longer be this separation that was created by a screen and a keyboard and a mouse. And this was partially due to science fiction. Um, it was largely due to science fiction, yeah. <laughs> because because the actual technology at the time um, was not not up to par, not mm-hmm. up, not up to the expectations that were generated as a result of both science fiction. Uh, also, I mean, obviously Hollywood had a big deal with how this was portrayed. And Absolutely, it, and and it was never really uh, realistic in the Hollywood version. Also, if you watch any of those movies that had a lot of virtual reality elements to them. They look awful by today's standards. When you talk about the graphics quality, oh, well, they—they they were showcases of that early computer-generated, right? But it was still, even though they look horrible by today's standards, they still looked amazing compared to what was cap- what we were capable of doing with virtual reality at that time. Also, it was really expensive because this was all a, t- a technology that had to be built from the ground up specifically for the purpose of virtual reality. Now, here's a hard, cold fact about technology. If you're designing something that is brand new, as in no one has built this kind of stuff before, there's a huge amount of money that goes into that to to build the prototypes. Research and development. Yeah, mm -hmm. enormous amount of money. And virtual reality did not, you know, it generated a lot of buzz, which was good in the early days, but then the reaction to what was actually possible was such that a lot of that interest and a lot of the support drained away very, very quickly. So you're left with these people who are doing valuable work in the field of virtual reality, but because there was this bubble that burst 
early on in the development of the technology itself and the industry, they were left with very little to work with once that bubble went away. So also, I feel like at the time people were were focused on the entertainment issues of it and, and weren't really thinking forward to um uh, yeah. to the the possible medical purposing and and therapy at, purposing. At least anyone outside the actual industry was not seeing those at, that you know there were people who were working in the industry who actually saw some really cool applications. Some of which we have actually seen happen over the course of. Uh, the several years that have uh, in between when virtual reality was a buzzword and today. Uh, but people who were looking at it from the outside, the general consumer, they were looking at it as video games. Right. Or sometimes, you know. I think it got pigeonholed is all I'm saying. Yeah. There were there was a, a smaller, smaller segment who were thinking virtual sex. And uh, <laughs> but I mean, those were like the those were like the two applications. It was either you were playing a game or you were having some sort of weird virtual romantic interlude. Yeah, yeah, that that scene in Demolition Man happened. So yeah, that was a thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes, it was a thing. Uh, if you if you haven't seen that, I don't necessarily recommend it. It's you know for for a for a for Wesley a, Snipes Sandra Bullock uh, picture. You know, it's, it's 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 fun. It's a fun film. I'm I'm not. Entire. Anyway, let All right. us- <laughs> so anyway, getting getting back into virtual reality, so to speak. Uh, so as time went on, the virtual reality community began to really like the the people who were really working on trying to develop things like sophisticated head tracking technology, sophisticated display technology, and input various user interfaces. Uh, what they began to do was they began to appropriate stuff from other industries, mostly the video game industry. Because video games were uh, progressing and they were starting to introduce new types of controllers. So, for example, when the Nintendo Wii launched and they had the the Wii control with the multiple axis gyroscopes in it that allowed for very specific kinds of interaction with the console, the video or the virtual environment, by now it's called virtual environments, not virtual reality, because virtual reality had sort of a stigma attached to it. The virtual environment people were, were thinking... Why don't we take that, like literally we'll go out and buy a Nintendo Wii and take apart the controller and use the technology in the controller to help develop our stuff because it's less expensive than developing one on our own or buying one of these very specific types of parts that are only made for virtual reality. Mm -hmm. So that kind of sets the scene for what happens with the Oculus Rift. So let's go and... First, we'll just talk about what the Oculus Rift is. It is a headset that has two screens in the headset, one screen for each eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the two screens both render a, a very similar image from a from a game. Yeah, it, on casual glance, you would think that it's the same picture, but, um, but 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 they're from very very slightly different angles. Just like your eyes are. Mm-hmm. To uh, right, right, to to give the illusion of depth when your brain puts the two images together. Yeah, and we'll talk more about what's actually going on there a little bit later in the podcast. So it's this headset, and it has motion tracking. Uh, so essentially, your head's motions are interpreted by by hardware in this headset sent to a computer that is uh, taking that as input and then uh, processing it within a game engine of some sort and sending back the response so that the images you see are based upon the movements you're making, right? I mean, that's basic head tracking technology, but it was 
and and it's this is this is what's interesting to me. This is not new. Like I said, this this started way back in the '90s, but a lot of the software side was very primitive, and so the pictures you would get would be very very basic. Like when I said that whole pterodactyl thing, one of the early games was you're this blocky figure moving around a blocky landscape, being chased by a blocky pterodactyl. And you had to just kind of run around and try and shoot other people using a blocky gun that fired, get ready for it, blocks. <laughs> uh, it was not, it was not Im- that immersive. I mean, it was interesting that your head could move, you, you know, you, it did track your motions, but it wasn't immersive in the sense that you felt anything was realistic. And there was a latency issue. And we'll talk about latency later too. Latency is like the death sentence for yeah. virtual reality systems. Yeah. So, uh, it wasn't a new idea, but this was a new way of, of approaching it, and it was all made possible by other industries. It wasn't the fact that the virtual reality industry had uh, advanced to a, a, a huge degree. It was because of things like smartphones and tablets. So let's talk about um, kind of uh, one of the most famous failures in virtual reality first, because this is one that uh, the founder of Oculus, uh, Palmer Lucky, has mentioned before, which is uh, also from Nintendo. Yeah, the Virtual Boy. Back in 1996, this was one that uh, the little headset would display red vector graphics. Uh, I think maybe not the first, but one of the first games to feature Wario was on the Virtual Boy. Uh, so he was able to survive the Virtual Boy, even if the product itself did not survive very long. Time Magazine gave it a review that was... Not positive. <laughs> they actually <laughs> said that uh, that it was migraine inducing, and uh, and so there was a lot of bad press about the Virtual Boy, and it didn't sell terribly well. It was one of the tech's biggest flops. I, I remember it being a blip on 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 my radar, and then almost immediately disappearing. Right up there with the Nintendo Power Glove. Oh yeah. If you had the Power Glove and a Virtual Boy, you were a huge Nintendo fan. You look like a cyborg, but you're probably throwing up a lot. And you maybe had two games to play. Yeah, that's also true. (laughs) So Palmer Lucky, he looks back on this history of virtual reality, and he is absolutely fascinated by it and wants to get involved in it. But let's learn a little bit more about who he is first. Like you said, Lauren... He's 20 years old. Right. As of right this very moment. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's from Irvine, California. Mm-hmm. Um, he self identifies as a hacker or maker. Yep. Both, both at the same time, probably. Um, he was homeschooled. His dad's a car salesman, I believe. Okay. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he went to, as, you know, he, for school, for, for college, he was actually studying journalism. Right. Uh, he in fact said that one of the things he wanted to do, he was always interested in taking things apart and learning how they worked and then trying to put them back together. And, you know, he had kind of typical smart kid success rate at things still working when mm-hmm. they were put back together after he'd taken them apart. But he, um, he said that he wanted to go to journalism school to learn to become a writer so that he could tell people he could write articles like really good articles to explain how stuff works Works. he wanted my job palmer lucky wanted my job well i'm really glad that he took his own job instead of ours yeah because we'd be out of a job and neither of us would have invented the oculus rift fact yeah because he his plan b ended up (laughs) ended up being a lot more successful being pretty okay um 
but uh yeah, he was he was he was into some some interesting pursuits as a child. Yeah. Yeah. I well, be- originally it was all about blowing stuff up. Right. Or right. shocking stuff. Yeah. Or, or setting I, it on fire. Like 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 Tesla coil guns I read Tesla about somewhere. Tesla coil guns. He built coil guns as a kid. He actually said at one in one interview, "It's a miracle I am still alive." Because he was building stuff like anything that would involve destruction for, through electronics was really fascinating to him. Well, typical I, kid. Can't can't blame him, yeah. You know, like yeah, probably like some little I don't want to be an armchair psychologist, but in general, I notice that kids and I do not I don't separate myself from here have occasionally power fantasies because so much of their life is head, is, held, is determined by other people. Exactly. Sure, so this sure. is sort of a, a self-determination, self-empowerment kind of thing. Some of us focus on dinosaurs because dinosaurs are bigger than our parents and therefore are more powerful. Some of us focus on Tesla coil guns that can melt our parents' faces off if we ever had that desire, which, by the way, he did not. Let's be clear. <laughs> he was not he was not planning on. On zapping people, he just Not wanted to that build he's stuff. Told that did us cool anyway. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. As far as we know. <laughs> but he did. He did wind up doing something constructive as well. He uh, he started up an iPhone repair business, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. As a teenager, he he began to he, when the iPhone came out, he was fascinated with that, and immediately he took one apart and learned really what made it work. And so he, because of his his practical knowledge of electronics, that was you know largely self taught, he ended up. Having a, a a successful iPhone repair business, he also would jailbreak people's iPhones. So if they wanted to have an iPhone that could run other types of stuff on it, that mm-hmm. rather than just what Apple would allow you to run, yeah, yeah, dual boot with whatever. Yeah, he would actually do that for a fee, and uh, apparently it was pretty successful. Uh, so so successful that he might have made around $36,000 in a single year doing wow. this. Wow. Which, you know, as a teenager... It's as, a pretty good salary. Yeah. For that, many humans, that's a pretty exactly. good salary. For, for for something like, this is this is his version of a lemonade stand, that's a pretty successful lemonade stand. Yes. Uh, as of 2009, when he was 16, I believe that was when he began looking into purchasing uh, virtual reality equipment. Yeah. That's when he kind of had, had had been online and had seen some stuff and was getting interested in the subject. Right. And, and that was also, he's done interviews where he's talked about how the the industry changed dramatically like uh back in the early days besides things like Nintendo's Virtual Boy which were really the exception those were the few th- there were only a few things that were ever consumer based technologies that the average person was would be expected to purchase oh right right even today a few years later the the very low end virtual reality equipment runs around a thousand bucks a pop yeah. i think um and and a lot of it um, a, a lot of the more professional gear was running up near a hundred thousand bucks yeah. a pop. In fact, one of the things he found, he found a piece of virtual reality equipment that was pretty rare, and at the time it was first produced, cost ninety-seven thousand dollars. He bought it for eighty-seven bucks. Wow! Because again, the VR industry Had just tanked. kind of petered out. Yeah. yeah. So he was really interested to seeing, you know, in seeing how these things worked. How did they track head? Head motion. How did they feed video in? And a lot of these early, early VR uh, equipment pieces are enormous, right? Sure. They require things like some, some of them, kind of rig. Exactly. They require a rig so that there's support 
because if you were to just wear it yourself, it would be so heavy as to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Some of them would be too heavy for you to even effectively move your head. So a lot of them would have these rigs that would allow you to have suspension from from like a um, uh, not the ceiling, but it would the rig itself would extend beyond where you would stand, and there'd be uh, cords that would help support the weight of the helmet. So you wouldn't have full 360 degree motion either. If you were to try and turn all the way around, eventually those those cords, cords would start would, to wrap up, yeah. yeah, and you'd have to turn back the other way. So he was interested in purchasing as many of these as possible to ma- learn what made him tick. Yeah, he he was thinking about creating more immersive um, game interfaces and uh, and and experiences, and but but none of this stuff was. Really, what he was looking for, he was yeah. he was kind of hoping to to salvage something together f- for himself, honestly. Right, and um and none of it was working. Right, so uh, but he he learned a lot during this period. Yeah, and um in as of 2011, he was working at the University of Southern California's Institute for Creative Technologies, which I believe is a military associated facility. Yeah, that's um, right. A spe- lot of the stuff they did was for the military. Specifically, yeah. he was working in the virtual reality exposure therapy program, um sometimes called Virtual Iraq which um, helps veterans who have PTSD uh, use VR therapy to right. to get over their... Post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. disorder. Yeah, in fact, uh, this is one of the most fascinating uses for virtual reality. And I've, I've actually talked to... There was um, there are people over at Emory and there are people over at Duke who run labs that use this kind of oh, approach. Cool. Uh-huh. And I've talked about it for use with PTSD. I've also talked about it for use with things like phobias. And the idea is it's this immersion therapy where you immerse a person into certain situations that might uh, trigger uh, anxiety or stress, but they are they know that they are in an, a safe environment. They know ultimately deep down that they are perfectly safe, that they are not really in that. But it's immersive enough that for people who have a severe fear of flying. Right. I've heard that it's extremely successful. Right. Something something along the lines of you could do a virtual visit to an airport. And the interesting thing here is that the scientists have discovered that the graphics do not have to be photorealistic at all. They don't have to be. You know, uh, to the point where you would look at something and think that's identifiable as Dulles International Airport, for example. You might look at it and just say, there's a building and there's the representation of a plane next to it. That's the airport. And once you get into the immersive environment, which usually takes around half a minute to a minute long for you to really get acclimated, assuming that everything is working properly on the technical end, Mm then you start to have the actual physical reactions you would if you were in the real situation. So, for example, one about a fear of heights. I remember specifically reading about this, actually talking about this to some of the people at Duke and Emory. Um, You might have a a simulation where you're on the top of a tall building. The building does not necessarily look like a real building. I mean, it might look like almost a cartoonish example. But the person would start to have that same physiological response as if they were in the real situation. And it was part of this this uh, this therapy to expose oneself to these situations in a safe environment to right, right. get acclimated. It's, it's the psychological principle of, of facing your fears. Essentially, yeah. there's right. there's a lot more technical terminology right. that we won't go into. And there's a here, lot of a but... lot of other elements to this therapy, obviously. Than Absolutely. Just, <laughs> you don't want it to just be cruel and be like, "Hey, I heard you're scared of spiders. Here's a big hairy spider." That, no, that would, no, that's it's, not it's, that's it, not therapy. That's cruelty. It's it's extremely guided therapy, yes. and and there are many parts of it. And uh, uh, but 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 it's excellent, really interesting work. Yeah, and, um, and so Lucky was working on this. Mm-hmm. He was this was part of the the stuff that 
that he was uh, involved in. And he he will be the first to tell you, by the way, he's a hardware guy. He's not a software guy. Right. And in fact, uh, there's some great interviews that he's done with other members of the, the software community, of the video game community, where he says the success of the Oculus Rift, the early success it has had before it, it's not even a consumer product yet. As of the recording of this podcast, it's in dev kit. Uh, yeah. it's, it, there's developer kits that are out, and that's about it. Yeah, you cannot, you cannot, as a consumer, buy this and expect to use it with a ton of games. There, are, right now, there are two games that are really. I think, I think working. three as as of this podcast. Oh, okay. But, yeah. So a third one has has recently joined yeah, on in the but, past week. Yeah. But it's not like you can't plug it into your console either. This is PC only right now, mm-hmm. uh, with the hope that maybe one day it'll it'll be available for multiple platforms. At any rate, he, he actually says, uh, you know, point blank, he says the success of this would not exist without the software side, but that's not my world. I, I can't program. I can build this hardware. So uh, he, he really was using that expertise while working over at the at Southern California's Institute for Creative Technologies. Uh, right. And he threw, I, I think that he was a member of a couple forums, the names of which I am completely forgetting. So somebody write in and tell me, uh, c- c- correct my complete lack of a word to give you. Mr. Um, Lucky. Uh, first of all, I object <laughs> to have to call you Mr. You're 18 years younger than I am. But uh, if you're listening, just uh, just write in and tell us what they were. Um, and, and he developed this plan um, to, you know, he, he really wanted to, to, to build... A, a kind of kind of a personal hobbyist kit yeah. of VR headsets. Exactly, this and was kind of a do-it-yourself. Yeah, thing. yeah. So, so he he planned a Kickstarter um, to to just create a hundred enthusiast kits. Right. Um, you know that that you know contributors would would get the pieces of a virtual reality headset and put it together themselves and be able to play around with it. And um, but but this got the attention of John Carmack. Yeah. And if you don't know that name, then you haven't been playing a lot of id Software's games. Yes. He's the co-founder of id Software. He was the lead programmer on like Wolfenstein 3D and Love Doom that and game. Quake. Love that game. Love you know, that game's okay. I was not, I was not a very Quake good series, I not just a, the first one. I wasn't a very good Quake player. So like once multiplayer got in, introduced and I, I realized that, hey, people react very differently than computer controlled uh, bad guys. My my kill death ratio was out the window. Ugh. I'm not uh, what I'm saying is I'm not good at these games. Well, and, what, and, what, and furthermore, that you don't like games that you can't be better than other people at. Oh, I hate that. That's just in general. By the way, if you ever have the opportunity to play a game with me, just turn it down. Just and and I'm I'm including like board games, card games, maybe a role playing game. That did, did, I mean, if you're playing Clue, do you just flip the table at some point? Actually, I'm very good at Clue. I am really good at Clue. But so he got the attention of John Carmack, <laughs> um, and uh, and 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 Carmack was kind of like, "Hey, so this is pretty cool. Could I buy one of these kits from you?" And and Lucky was like, "I can give you one of those. Right? No problem." Um, so so Lucky sent him a prototype, and Carmack just ran with it. He demoed it um, with a Doom Three BFG at 2012's E3. Right, and that that made everybody think, "Wow, I have never experienced Doom like this. This is a." Really immersive first-person shooter experience. The VR is working. Uh, it, it is uh, exciting. Where can I get one of these? Right. It exploded, and I mean, everyone was excited about it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, getting back to the, this idea of the developer kit, 100 units. What that reminds me of is Wozniak and Jobs. 
because the very first Apple computer was essentially the same sort of thing. Like, we'll send you the parts, you build a case, and you've got yourself a computer. Mm-hmm. That was the Apple One. Sure. So that's exactly what Palmer Lucky was. He, that was kind of like, that was he was like, this is going to be like a little side hobby for me. I'm going to do this. And at this point, where the press gets a chance to see it, and Carmack, he sees the potential for this well beyond a hobbyist, you know, tiny, tiny project. He sees this has potential to be a legitimate video game peripheral. And like, this was a goofy prototype. I mean, they're, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he was like duct taping straps to it so right. that people could demo it at E3. So. Right, right. This was a little janky, as <laughs> you like to say. Yes, that is the technical professional term. So what was Lucky's reaction to this uh, sudden increase in interest and the possibility of actually having a feasible company as a result? Um. Basically, he dropped out of the journalism program at Cali State University. Not a surprise. That's following in the footsteps of so many giants in the technology industry. By the way, stay in school, kids. <laughs> Not all of us can be Palmer Lucky. Oh, right, right. If you are Palmer Lucky, go ahead. But I mean, you know. if, if you have a genuinely terrific idea that has gotten someone of the ilk of John Carmack interested in you, then yeah. by all means, Run pursue with it. it. Run with it before Do you're it. shackled yes. with life's uh, responsibilities like I am. Uh, but, but so from, from this response at E3, um, you know, a, a lot of people in the industry started getting into it. And, um, and as soon as they did, he started, Lucky started taking prototypes to other folks like, like the people at Valve. Yeah. Gabe Newell, for yeah. example. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, and got people like Gabe Newell to participate in this new Kickstarter project that he was putting together for what we know as the Oculus Rift today. Yeah, so this is really the founding of Oculus as a company. So Oculus is the company that is creating the Oculus Rift. And in fact, you can think of the Oculus Rift as being their first product. And um, and so now the, the plan had changed. It was no longer going to be, let's offer up 100 uh, dev kits that this one guy is personally putting all the pieces together, putting them in a box and shipping them off to the 100 or so people that have backed it. Now it's let's put together a plan to create a more um, a slightly not a consumer level product, because it's still like if you take a look at one of the Oculus Rift headsets, it does not look like like a finished product. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not sleek and sexy. Mm -hmm. It's exciting to use. But when you look at it, you're like, wow, it looks like a black box that you strap to your face. It is because it is. Yeah, that's what it is. It's not. It's not something that you would think, oh, this is something that you could easily market beyond this niche audience. Right. The Kickstarter fund was for development kits. Right. So the goal of that Kickstarter fund was about two was exactly two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So, Lauren, tell me, did they make it? <laughs> they 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 made it times ten approximately. Yeah. Within um, twenty four hours, they had already made their funded. goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then went went on to raise precisely two million four hundred thirty seven thousand four hundred twenty nine dollars. Yeah, it was a lot of money they brought in, and that yeah. So it's, it makes it one of uh, Kickstarter's big success stories, right? Right up there with some of the. I mean, clearly not on the level of say the Pebble. But it's it's way up there. Sure. It's 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 on the it's on the holy cow, look at what's possible end of the spectrum as opposed to the 
Ah, so that's what really happens when you launch a Kickstarter. Oh, yes, yeah, they they wound up having um uh, nine thousand five hundred twenty two backers. Um, over seven thousand of those were development kit purchases. Right. So it was only at certain levels or above that you would actually get a developer receive kit. a kit. Right. Yeah, the first one hundred people to pledge at the two hundred seventy five level, two hundred seventy five dollar level would receive a developer kit at uh, at a discount because mm-hmm. the developer kits in general go at $300 a pop. Right. That's how much they are currently selling for on right. uh, on their site. On their yeah, site. If you go to Oculus, you mm-hmm. can, by the way, if you want to, you can buy one of these. Anyone can. You don't kits. have to have some kind of yeah, paperwork. You don't need to know that the password is swordfish. You know, you don't need to know. I do still that recommend can... receiving a rabies shot. <laughs> yeah. I'm, uh, I'm kidding. No, no rabies is associated yeah, with Oculus Rift that I'm personally so aware far. of. <laughs> So far, when we get that 28 days later uh, video game, you know, there'll be rage. Get Matt uh, and Ben in here. But at any rate, yeah, get some stuff they don't want you to know in here. Uh, plug. Yeah, the, the $300. So you can actually buy one of these yourself. But if you do that, you do that knowing that it, your your actual use of it's going to be pretty limited if you're not a developer. Sure. If you are a developer and you want to practice, you know, try and create stuff that works with the Oculus Rift, clearly that's an investment that would make sense for you. If you're an average gamer, unless you are uh, intending to play one of the three titles that is currently compatible with the Oculus Rift, it doesn't make sense because it's not like we said, it's not at consumer product level yet. This right. is this is on the way to becoming a, a consumer product. Yeah, so after after 100 people could back at the $275 level, that was it. It was sort of an early bird special. And right. if you weren't part of that, then you had to go at $300 or higher to get at least one headset. At the higher levels, you could actually get more than one headset at a discount. So the solution here to, to creating a, a viable product is the partnership with developers, the partnership with game companies, because this is kind of like a specialized video display that only works with stuff that's been built to work with it. So it's not, again, it's not like you can just plug it in and run any kind of software and then you are in the middle of it. Right, you know, no. It has to be optimized for it. And mm-hmm. we'll talk more about why when we get into how it's actually working. But always important to remind people because it is an exciting thing, but I don't want everyone running out and dropping $300 and then being disappointed that they can't play, you know, uh, Super Mario and be running through and knocking the blocks. Although that would be awesome. That would be awesome. Uh, so uh, moving on. Uh the Kickstarter campaign was a uh, a success. We could say that. I think that's safe to say. It's safe to call it that. And uh, he, Lucky, would continue to show this off at various uh, conferences and conventions. I first heard about this when they showed it off at CES 2013. Mm-hmm. I might have heard about it once or twice beforehand, but I, I I knew that it was present at the showroom floor at CES 2013. Unfortunately, sure. I didn't get a chance to play with it then. Hmm. I didn't get a chance to play with it until E3 2013, and ah. then I played the heck out of it. <laughs> uh, right, yeah, that, that that Kickstarter campaign had run from August to September of 2012. So yeah, so so moving up to 2013 is when um, they were they were just going like, we have all the money and yeah. we have all the support and yeah. and let us let us and then they got frolic. then they ended up um, getting that the additional private support as well as more right. orders that came in after the Kickstarter was yeah. complete at um. At, at E3 2013, they beat out both the PS4 and the Xbox One for the best hardware peripheral Game Critics Award. 
not surprising. It's it's got a lot of potential. And beyond uh just uh, the virtual reality realm, there are a lot of people who are interested in in appropriating some of the same sort of technologies that Lucky used to create augmented reality headsets. So this would be more like the what we hear about the potential for Google Glass or other uh, various glasses that are supposed to incorporate augmented reality uh, at some point. They're talking about using something along the same lines as the technology used for the Oculus Rift. Now, clearly, the way the Oculus Rift is created with these these screens, these solid screens in front of your face, that's not ideal for augmented reality glasses if you're going to be moving around in the real world because uh, you're not going to see you're going to see <laughs> a video representation of the real world directly in front of you. Uh, I think most people would imagine that the augmented reality version would include clear uh, display right. that you could see stuff printed on. I could I could see a very similar uh, set of technologies going towards that kind of display. Um, yeah. but, but but we'll get into the that. actual tech stuff in just sure, a second. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, so uh, some other interesting developments happened. One of them absolutely tragic uh, that happened just before uh, E3. Right, June 1st. June 1st, uh, yeah. That's when uh, Andrew Rice, uh, who was one of the graphics engineers, one of the original team members at Oculus, was involved in a car accident. He was, uh, uh, it was actually, the car was fleeing a police chase when it collided with him, and uh, and he passed away as a result of that accident. And, I mean, that was obviously, this was a very tight, small development team. Right, so, right. It's, it's still, um, I believe, under 30 people. Yeah, it's, that's that's tiny yeah. for when you're talking about something that has... That's raising $16 million exactly. and has this kind of reach. Right, exactly. So the, obviously that was felt deeply within their their own company and across the community. I mean, this was... The other thing about Oculus was that, uh, and, and something they continue to do, they update regularly. They blog about the development process. They they blog about the people involved. So there were backers who felt, you know, personal very connections. Very personally, yeah. So that was that was a very tragic moment. Mm-hmm. Um, they also uh, in, on August seventh, so not too long before we record this podcast. We're recording this in on August fifteenth. Um, and uh, but on August seventh, John Carmack stopped becoming just an evangelist for the company and started to work for the company as the uh, chief technology officer. In fact, yep, CTO, and uh, he also is uh, still continuing his work with other companies as well. It's not like he's quit everything just to work exclusively for Oculus, but now he is on the company payroll. And uh, yeah, as of July, they had seventeen thousand developer kits out. Yeah. So, so they were actually delivering upon the 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 mm-hmm. backing. That's something else I should point out because their Kickstarter Kickstarter has a little bit of a I don't know if it, if you could say that Kickstarter has a a tarnished reputation, but certain the idea of having a Kickstarter campaign has a little bit of a tarnished reputation only because there have been cases, particularly when it comes to something like promising a particular type of technology where the delivery has either been delayed or even canceled. Right. And it has caused uh, people to kind of have a, a negative reaction to Kickstarter in general. So this is actually a positive story in the sense that here's a company that held a Kickstarter uh, campaign. And less than a year later, some of the hardware's out. It, right. Yeah. According to their website, like yesterday, uh, if, if you buy a dev kit right now, um, it'll be shipping sometime in September 2013. That's so. a pretty quick turnaround, yeah. considering that they, oh, this is still, I'm sure this is still one of those things that doesn't have 
a truly seamless manufacturing process yet because Absolutely. it's still in the developers. Yeah, stage. yeah. Um, and uh, and they are set to open a Dallas office very soon. Yep. Possibly right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, go check. <laughs> You're in Dallas. Let us know if it's open yet. Yes. All right. So that sets us up. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about actually how this thing works, what it's doing to create the images you see and and how it tracks your mo- movements. But before we get into all those technical details, we're going to take a quick break and thank our sponsor. So now let's talk about how this crazy thing works. We mentioned a little bit about it already. Yeah, uh, the, the the way that you see in 3D vision with your eyeballs is is that is that you know they're they're slightly offset. They are not in the exact same place on your face because we can't be a cyclops. Oh, you could be if you really tried. Yeah, or I, you know. Un- if misfortune befell you. Yes. Uh, this, this does happen to, to, to some people. There, there are many medical conditions in, in which you only have the use of one eye. And, right. and that is where you do not get stereoscopic stereo, you know, in. In two, yeah. In dual, yeah. yes. Um, and, uh, and yes. So, so, so combining two images that are very slightly offset, your brain goes, I can, I can see this in three dimensions. Right. So instead of us both getting two sets of images that remain two sets of images in our brains, which would be, Kind of an interesting experience, I'm sure, but also maybe disorienting. Uh, this this two sets of data get combined into one set, and that's what we think of as the world around us for, as far as vision is concerned. So uh, this helps us judge things like how close or far away an object is. There are other things that help too, like uh, like uh, just just uh, comparing the size of something. Like sure. if I, I know that. Uh, that Josh Clark is taller than Lauren. So if I look and I see that Lauren appears to be taller than Josh, I know that Josh is approximately a mile away and Lauren's probably in front of me. Uh, that's just an, you, that's, Lauren, a, that's a science fact, actually, you, guys. You, you make old jokes. I make short jokes. Uh, uh, um, but, but and, 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 and this is also how um, how a lot of of special effects end up working by by tricking your brain into into thinking yeah, that the force perspective force perspective yeah, so and, lord of the rings and the hobbit obviously those right. are ones that you would think about Hugely. where where because mm-hmm. because the the video itself is being shown to you uh, on a two dimensional well until we get to the 3D movies and on a two dimensional surface uh, you can trick people by having this forced perspective thing. But in in an actual world situation, because you've got these converging lines of sight on objects, uh, you can use what is called parallax. That's the, the idea of these two lines that eventually do converge onto something. At the they give you an idea. Right. Yeah. And, and that's your focal point. That gives you an idea of how, how close or far away something is. The further away an object gets, the more parallel these two lines become. So that it becomes less of a useful um, uh, tool for things that are really far away. So if you're talking about two buildings that are way off in the distance, you might not be able to tell which one is larger just based on that alone without you know previous knowledge of building A is twice the size of building B. Right, right. But if it's closer to you, parallax comes into play. So that's the idea, right? Each screen gives a slightly different view of whatever it is you're looking at in the realm of the virtual environment, which in this case are games. Mm-hmm. And uh and that way it gives you the illusion that it's that you are right there and that the world you are in actually has depth. Now, there's no eye tracking software here, but there is head tracking hardware. Right. So it's not it's not keeping track of where your eye motions are. So you can look around. It's not like if you're wearing just goggles. The goggles themselves aren't tracking your eyes, but they will move as you know if you as you move the direction of your face. 
Same sort of thing. So it's using sensors to detect that kind of motion, whether it's uh, pitch, roll, yaw, tilt, all that kind of stuff. It's detecting all of that as uh, as input for changing the way the display appears in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this display being an LCD screen in a plastic mask, it sits about an inch away from the user's eyes, mm-hmm. and um and, and right that 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 screen is is divided by a small barrier. It's it's a pretty big screen. I think it's like a like a hundred and ten degrees. Yeah, diagonally. When, we'll get into that in a second. Yeah. But um, it, it uses a few other tricks to create realism as well. Like uh, it, it warps slightly the edges of the images and, and corrects that in the goggles a little bit. So, uh, you know, the, the, the digital rendering, I'm saying, is, is warped a little bit at the edges and then the goggles correct for it, which is basically high, how your eyeballs work because they're curved. Right. The, the idea here being that you don't want it to just look like you flat. are. Yeah, that you're looking at a flat world that has depth behind it, but there's nothing around you. Mm-hmm. It also packs the pixels more tightly directly in front of your eyeball than around the edges, which, again, because our eyeballs are curved, um, it, it gives a, a human-like roundness to an image. It also helps, you know, it keeps keeps you motivated to focus directly straight ahead with your eyes as opposed to keeping your head still and moving your eyes around uh, because it, it's it's kind of mimicking that sense of when I look ahead – the, whatever I'm clear. Staring, whatever mm-hmm. I'm looking at is, fo- is in focus, and then everything else is kind of in peripheral vision. Petering out a little yeah. bit, sure. Um, uh, there, there are a few limitations that are currently being addressed. There's a certain screen door effect, which uh, in, in, in which right now users have been finding that they can see through the pixels of the LCD screen because mm. they're not they're, there's not enough of them. They gotcha. Need, they need more. Needs higher resolution. Yes. Um, and uh, and I think that they're trying to add gaze tracking. Which would be really interesting. That would allow you to actually uh, uh, dynamically change the these elements we talked about, where you've got those pixels that are uh, in the that are concentrated right in front of the eyes. If you could be able to move that dynamically so that the uh, you would have this effect where if I'm, I'm I'm walking and I'm not turning my head, but I dart my eyes to the left and it is able to move in real time with that. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about prediction software in a bit that kind of helps with that. Uh, then that could make it even more immersive sure. and more and feel closer to being natural. In fact, and again, while, while it's hard to say that being in a virtual environment is ever kind of a natural thing. After that uh, initial adjustment, you do start to feel you, you start to move within that virtual environment. You don't really necessarily think about your real world surroundings as much unless you know something changes that that diverts your attention. Let's right. say that you have a, a anxious Jack Russell Terrier who jumps on your lap. That might you know unless that also has happened at the exact same time in the video game that could pull your attention away. Uh, right. Or let's say that you bang your knee into a table because you were walking forward as your character in the game right. walked forward. Right. And and by the way, there are people who are working on uh, various setups that are not meant for consumer use either, but they were interested in combining the Oculus Rift with other things so that you would have even more immersive control in various games. Like there was the group that did the virtual paperboy. Right. Where right, they yeah. had it hooked up to a resistance bike training bike where they by pedaling the bike they would propel the video game character forward they had a first person perspective as if they were playing paperboy but from the paperboy's point of view and then they had a connect sensor right. detecting their arm motions to be when you fling when a, you fling it. a, a, a mm-hmm. pa- newspaper 
So what they did was they hooked up the Oculus Rift to a uh, an exercise bike, a resistance training bike. And by pedaling the resistance training bike, right, right. they propel the virtual character forward. And then they had a connect sensor that would detect arm motions. So that when you throw the papers. Yeah, that would be the that would be the indicator for the game to throw the papers. And you're seeing it all from the Paperboy's perspective, as opposed to that side view that you had in the original uh, arcade game. Right. So that's just one example. There are other people who have kind of developed the... Uh, multi-directional treadmills so that you could walk on the treadmill and this would propel you forward within a virtual environment. So there's a lot of already, you know, a lot of talk already about incorporating the Oculus Rift into other types of setups of this nature. Now, granted, that goes beyond what the average video game player would experience. Sure. Um, so we don't recommend you get up on your feet and walk around while you're wearing one of these things because you're not going to see your actual environment. You're seeing a virtual environment. I've, I, I've heard a few, a few, um, you know, not sob stories, but but just stories of, of of like caution. You can totally knock over wine glasses while you are flailing about with this it's thing. Kind, kind of, of similar to the to the warnings you would hear from the original uh, Wii remote, where right. people were flinging them into their television sets, and you would see a picture of a Wii remote emerged from a, a an old TV set, and you think, mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Wrist strap. Yeah. So, um, but uh, interestingly enough, you can still use the Oculus Rift even if you have poor or no vision in one eye. Yep. Um, yeah, the the screen will still work. Sure, sure. I, you you won't again. You won't get the stereoscopic three dimensional effect. Um, but uh, uh, Richard Eisenbeis, uh, writing for Kotaku, recently described what it's like playing with a single eye because he had a, a bad LASIK surgery experience. But, um, Yikes. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the doctors expect full recovery. Um, but he said that the 3D effect was slightly flattened and that his depth perception was off, like you do when you only have one Why? eye working. Sure. Um, and that motion blur was increased, but that it was still very immersive and actually didn't cause any queasiness. Right. And uh, one of the big causes of queasiness is this idea of latency, which I mentioned right. earlier. Latency, if, if it, you know, the name kind of gives it away. What latency is, is it's a delay between when you take an action and when that action is displayed to you. Now, in the case of head tracking software, that would mean that if I turned my head to the right, the display would reflect that turn on the screen. But if there's a delay between when I turn my head and when it happens on the screen, my brain thinks, whoa, something is messed up, yo. Right, because it's it's actually better than instantaneous when you're seeing it in in real life because your 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 brain is filling in information that it doesn't already have yet. Yeah. Um it's there's some predictive stuff going on in your brain already. Mm-hmm. It's and it's handling a lot of input from a lot of different sources. Everything sure. from your inner ear to what's coming into your eyes to what you're you're sensing like by touch. So all of these things go into uh, telling your brain what is going on around you. And when those things don't match up, your brain's like, something's not good. Uh, let's trigger the stomach to empty all of its contents as rapidly as possible. Or at least that seems to be the case. Seems like a bad reflex, but... But if you've ever been, say, on a boat and you have that sensation of, you know, the ground you are on is moving, but because you're moving with the ground, your vision isn't reflecting that, right? You're not, especially if you're on the inside of a boat and you can't see the outside at all, 
your brain is just saying, this is weird because everything, it looks still from my perspective, but I'm feeling like you're moving all over the place. Let's turn on the vacate the stomach flip switch and see maybe, what happens. Maybe that'll make it better. <laughs> right. Somehow that'll fix things. I don't understand the physiological part of this, but this is what seems to happen. So Let's get Robert and Julie on that one yeah, while, maybe we're, we while we're plugging other shows. Yeah, stuff to blow your mind. Listen to it. It's awesome. But yeah, the, uh, the, the this idea of the mismatched data that comes into you, it often ends up making you feel uh, dizzy, nauseous, you know, there's or nauseated, I should say. I mean, you might be nauseous as well, but nauseated. Um, then you, you, you know, it's it's unpleasant, and so latency is a big, big contributor to that. So getting latency down where there is as little delay as possible is a goal. Now, Oculus says that they developed uh, a reduced latency technology that got it down to two milliseconds to send the information from the headset to the software. Now, that's a one-way trip there. Remember, there's a round trip that we have to take into account here. It's not just the trip to the software. The software has to crunch the numbers from whatever data it's receiving and send back the appropriate uh, response to the screen. So it takes longer than two milliseconds for all that to happen. Uh, And humans can detect a latency of around 50 milliseconds, maybe even fewer than 50 milliseconds. That's no time at all. I mean, we're talking a fraction of a second. Now, according to Steve Lavelle, using the Rift and playing a game at 60 frames per second, latency is right around 30 to 50 milliseconds. So just right below or at that threshold. Mm -hmm. So um, that includes the time it takes for the sensors to pick up the motion, send that motion out the port, go into the game engine as a command, and then get rendered. Render and come back. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the full trip. That's the whole round trip. And if it's able to do that uh, reliably at that speed, that's good. And we, you know, I expect that that's something that they're going to work on improving to make sure that there is as little latency issue there as possible, especially as video games start to push that limit of 60 frame, 60 frames per second. Uh, if they are pushing to make it even more frames per second, then clearly you have to worry about that latency issue because that's more data that's going through these ports. Like we said, the sensors, the motion sensors, uh, detect yaw, pitch, and roll, and they use what is called sensor fusion, which is not a type of cuisine, as I first thought, but it's actually a technique to combine all the data that's gathered from these various sensors into virtual re- virtual actions within the context of the environment you're in, the game you are in. Um, and then uh, Steve Lavelle also wrote an incredible blog post that is really, really technical. If you are interested on the software side of this, and about how to uh, reduce latency to to the minimum uh, levels, I highly recommend it because it's it's fascinating, but it's way too technical for us to go into here. But this is where he was talking about predictive techniques. So prediction is exactly what it sounds like. The game engine starts to predict what you are going to do based upon what you are doing right now. Oh, wow. And, and so, so it starts to render out what you're going to need to see next before right. you actually need it. And, and the, the goal of this is not to give you a vision of the future, but rather to remove that latency, to sure. make it as, as small as possible. So if the predictive techniques are good, then it means that you have a very smooth experience, very little motion blur, no latency. If it's bad, it means that like if you suddenly turn left, but it starts to go right because it thought you were going to go right, then that's going to just exacerbate the problem. So predictive technology has to be really sophisticated for it to do more good than harm. His blog post goes into great detail 
about how they are using this to try and create a, a really immersive, comfortable experience with the Oculus Rift. And uh, like I said, it's really, really great. The Oculus blogs in general, fantastic read, but they are very technical. So <laughs> read at your own risk. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about what the actual hardware has. So the according to what's in the developer kit right now. Right. Keeping in mind the consumer version is going to be different from what is out there right now. It will very likely change indeed. Yep. Uh so um yeah, so so we've got we've got six degrees of freedom. Right. Uh that that pitch, pitch roll, roll and yaw. Yeah. Yep. Um for, for the head tracking. Um that hundred and ten degree diagonal screen yep. that we were talking about, which is um ninety degrees horizontal. Yep, ninety degrees horizontal view, field of view. So you know those the screens are are physically they're small, but because of their proximity to your eyeballs, they look pretty big. It mm-hmm. fills your vision. Um, it's a DVI video input. Yep, digital visual interface input. Uh, so this was that that input interface, by the way, was originally developed by the Display Working Group. Uh, that's the the kind of interface that allows you to hook up a display to a computer. So a lot of computer monitors and displays have this. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, it does have um, HDMI ad- adaptation. Yeah, capacity. yeah, you, you can get an HDMI adapter to convert from DVI to HDMI, but you do need to have that adapter. It does not have natively. It does not have an HDMI port to hook up. Right. But you can. That's one thing I expect the consumer version would have, just because of the drive to move to HDMI. Yes. Uh, especially since. A lot of video game consoles have that kind of thing. Uh, I expect that we will see HDMI native support in whatever the consumer version is. They haven't announced that, so don't take that as you know gospel. Right? right. Don't quote us. That's on this, just but. that's just my prediction. Um, yeah. So you need to have either HDMI or DVI video out on, on your, your computer. computer in order to run this. Yeah. If you were like, but my computer only has FireWire. It is yeah. for PC only yes. right now. Yep. Um, they, they are, again, hoping to roll it out to um, consoles and mobile platforms. Um, yeah. They're also uh, talking, there's buzz anyway, that they're talking about expanding it to watching movies, surfing the web, doing programming. Yeah, which... In the Matrix! <laughs> yeah, right. Lawnmower Man. Uh, woo. Yeah, it just shows our own frames of reference for virtual environments, doesn't it? You say Matrix, I say Lawnmower Man. Oy. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I, I wonder about watching movies because, again, at that point, you're not really even talking about head tracking, right? There's no purpose for head tracking if you're watching a film because the film is captured from a single point of view. I mean, unless you're uh, presenting only part of a movie screen, which I can't imagine being a satisfying experience, you're really just looking at something really close to your face. Unless you eventually get to a point where you are able to create a, well, especially if, if it's a 3D animated movie, then this would be much easier to do. You could, you could create a movie where, uh, you would be able to change your perspective as opposed to relying upon the camera to define what the perspective is. Sure. Or just even, even I think, you know, if, if you've got one of the, um, a digital 3D stereoscopic films uh-huh. that you just pour. I mean, even without being able to move your head around, it would I be... I could see. Yeah, I could see know. that. Where you're talking about maybe watching movies that were designed to be in 3D in the first place, maybe right. this would give a mm-hmm. superior 3D experience. Yeah. I could see that. And also it reduces eye strain from looking at a 3D screen because um, uh, the... The way that the way that these goggles work is um, you're you're actually focusing on 
you're you're relaxing your eyes to a to a distant point. Right. You're looking. Is, you're you're kind of looking through the screen, which is the default for your eyes looking. It's it's any any kind of eye strain that you get. You would think you know oh it's an inch away from your eye that's going to lead to terrible eye strain, but at, but actually looking at your computer screen a foot away from you causes a lot more eye strain than these yeah. goggles. Would. The idea being that this is like looking through a window as sure. opposed to yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so the, the uh, about resolution? that screen, yeah, yeah. it's um, currently uh, twelve eighty by eight hundred. But that's that's if you combine the two screens, right? Right. Uh, yeah. It's what, what's that? Six forty by eight hundred per eye. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Six forty by eight hundred per eye, which is that's close to the resolution of seven twenty p, which is twelve eighty by seven twenty. Okay. Um, but it, but again, this is a thing that could change for for consumers. Right. And also, I mean. You know, obviously higher resolution means better pictures in general, but there's also something you need to consider that the closer you get to a screen, the less resolution matters, right? So unless your screen is getting larger and larger and larger. So let's say you've got, you stay with a, a, a let's say that your TV is 40 inches, right? Depending upon how close you sit to that television, 720p and 1080p might not be that distinguishable. Now, if you sit... a if you sit further, closer and closer to it, then you're going to notice. If you sit further away, you're, those differences fade away into nothing. So that you could have a 720p and a 1080p set side by side, but if you're 15 feet back, they look the same, if, sure. assuming they've both been calibrated for that room and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But if you're talking about an 80-inch screen, first of all, invite me over because I want to watch movies and play Halo uh, but, uh, then it obviously will matter more. You've got more screen space. The resolution is spread out over a greater landscape area. So you've got to, uh, have higher resolution or else you will start to notice it at regular viewing distances. With something that's one inch away from your eye, uh, while they could probably in- increase the resolution and it would be maybe noticeable, I don't know that they have to stress it too much. Oh, right. I, I think it's, I think mostly the, the issue right now is that screen door effect that I was talking about exactly. earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, the headset itself costs, uh, costs, weighs a little bit less than half a pound or a little bit less than a quarter of a kilogram. Yeah, nice. So it's not too terribly heavy. Another huge advance over older VR software or te- hardware, I should Anything say. Anything that you're strapping to your head. Nice yeah. to have it light. Yes. Um, and the dev kits right now cost 300 bucks a pop. Right. I've heard, I've heard that they're trying to keep it with the, the final commercial product within the three to $500 range. Which, you know, when you're considering that most consoles cost around that much makes sense. They don't want it to go higher than the console that it would sure, work with. Sure, sure. And it's still a, a significant improvement over, again, the, the thousand bucks or so a pop that, yeah. that current. Or the hundred thousand dollar if you're talking <laughs> about the, the specifically made for the VR industry. Uh, sure. equipment that was back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so it's not like it's it's not going to be inexpensive. It's going to be an expensive peripheral. Now, if you're if you're used to either building or buying high-end video game rigs, this is, you know, just a small it's a drop. expense compared to what your $10,000 rig was. Um so this kit is not just the hardware. There's the software developer kit too. So this is the software side. And again, remember, Lucky is not a software guy. He's a hardware guy. Uh, the software developer kit contains all the information you would need to be able to develop stuff specifically to display on an Oculus Rift and to work with this motion tracking hardware. And that contains all the libraries you need, the headers, the documentation, the samples for integrating the Rift with games. It also includes Two different game engines, the Unreal Engine and the Unity uh, engines. 
And uh, those are widely available game engines that a lot of companies use as the basis for the physics and uh, and number crunching engine of whatever game they're running. So there are currently three titles that are compatible with the Oculus Rift. One of them is Team Fortress 2, which is a squad-based first-person shooter game, moves at an incredibly frenetic pace. Uh, the other one that was originally uh, announced as being uh, compatible was Hawken, which is a multiplayer mech combat video game by Adhesive Games. Uh, the the third that they just rolled out, um, I, I think I think in August of 2013, right before we right before we recorded this podcast, was Half Life Two. Half Life Two. Because yeah. I really want, I do not at all want actually the the experience of having a head crab jump at my face don't and you, having it be more realistic. But don't you want the experience of watching a gravity gun work right in front of your face and yes. launching things at high velocity? Also, I mean, that gives me hope that the next title will be uh, Portal. Can you imagine Portal first person? Like you are in the world of Portal? That's what I'm waiting on. Because those two those two universes are connected. They Aperture are. Science and, and, and Black Mesa. And Black Mesa, as we all know from the Jonathan Colton song. They, um, they are connected. Completely connected. So uh come on guys, let's get our let's get our Oculus Rift version of Portal. I That sounds that sounds a little bit sickening, but wonderful. I would love it. I mean, can you well yeah. I, I don't know what that would be like once you start moving at those in, insane speeds where you do the vertical portals. To... I would need to get one of those psychologists to, to come to my house while I played <laughs> so that I could turn it into a height therapy related. Yeah, yeah I can I, I can yeah. imagine that. Yeah, maybe that game wouldn't work out in the long run. I'd be willing to play it until I started. Oh, no, no, no. no I want that. I want that right now. But I'm uh, terrified. But those are um, the titles available right now. Not Portal, but Half-Life 2, Team Fortress 2, and Hawken. So uh we'll see those expand obviously but even so like again just to stress yet again this is of course the developer side once this becomes a consumer product you, I would expect there to be support for at least 20 titles yeah because if oh, there's sure. if there's not then you know it's hard to justify the expense in the mind of the gamer like I'm mm-hmm. willing to pay 300 to 500 dollars on this piece of technology and I can play 20 games on it, and that's it? Or not fewer than 20? Fewer, yeah, right. That would be a mm-hmm. If you can only breaker. do less than 10, then that might be a, like, why would I pay that much money for that thing? Although lots of people lots of people have. Lots of people are excited about it. Um, there, There is no official release date. Yeah. yeah. The, the company's stance is it'll be ready when it's ready, which is, I think, the most responsible way to go about it. Because otherwise, what you'll do is you'll create a, a deadline that, you know, something will pop up that you could not have anticipated that will either cause you to miss the deadline, thus inviting the ire of all of the internets, or you will start to sacrifice things in order to make the original deadline and the product will be less than what it could have been. So I think that taking this approach of we aren't announcing a date, we're getting it as soon as possible, but we want it to be good when it launches, I think that's the right choice, especially when you're talking about hardware. Um, cause I mean, you can't, it's, it's harder to update that. I mean, you can do firmware updates, obviously, but, sure. but once but if, you, once you put you the decide, pieces in place, yeah, you know. yeah it's harder. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. Like, like we said, there's no official price yet either. Um, you know, obviously they want to, they want to keep it affordable. Yep. Um, and we might see it being used in, well, I'm sure we'll see it being used in virtual reality, uh, 
fields beyond gaming. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the kind of stuff that they're talking about it being useful for, like, like surgery training. Right. Or, um, or, or architecture and design. Which is really kind of cool. This, this idea of being able to take a virtual tour of a building that hasn't even gone beyond the blueprint stage. Mm-hmm. That's kind of interesting. And um, of course, the medical, uh, uh, techniques that we've talked about already, this exposure technique. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the VR industry still exists, although they call it virtual environments for the most part. It still exists, but they do go to the video game industry all the time for all the equipment. So I expect we'll see that continue. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. Uh, I I got a chance to play with it in person at E3, and I thought it was a really interesting experience. Um, I played a an independently developed game that was not one of the ones we mentioned. It was uh, something that was specifically kind of a, a thought experiment. A demo and, for, for E3, really, I think. Yeah, it was great. I, I can't wait to have a chance to work with this when there are more titles that I can play. All right, so guys, that wraps up this discussion about the Oculus Rift. If you have any suggestions for technology we should cover, companies that you want to hear more about, innovators that have always excited you, we've got an episode coming up where we're going to actually turn back the clock and look at a technology that was installed in 1852. If you want to hear stuff like that, let us know. Write us. Tell us. Our address is discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. You can find us there. We have the handle techstuffhsw, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 